This audio recording is produced by Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous, also known as FA. FA is a program based on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is free and open to anyone who wants to stop eating addictively. The following is one FA member's story of recovery. The opinions expressed here are those of the individual member and do not represent FA as a whole. If you are new or uncertain about FA, we encourage you to listen to several stories to gain an understanding of what the program offers. For information on the FA program, please visit our website, foodaddicts.org. This meeting is being sponsored by the FA 12-step committee for the distinct purpose of creating tapes for the 12-step committee tape library. Those who wish, please join me in, in, a, in the serenity prayer. God, grant me this serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And my prayer today is that I can stay out of my way <laughs> and really let go and let God. Uh, I need to remember that the only purpose for me being here is to help the newcomer who still suffers. I am very grateful and I have a special affinity for these 12-step tapes. When I came into program five and a half years ago, the closest person with 90 days lived about 3,500 miles from me. These tapes were my lifeline. There was only about 10 tapes, I think, then. And my sponsor sent me, said, buy these tapes. Listen to these tapes. I listened to these tapes. These were my meetings. I had AA meetings. But I listened to these tapes over and over and over. And there are people in this room whose voice I heard on those tapes. And my sponsor said, call them. <laughs> and I called them, and I was so shy at that time. I didn't know what to say. So I remember calling Darlene, and I said, I really got a lot out of your tape for about the 10th time. Would you tell me more about your recovery? And people were there for me. And I called Jean, and I called Cynthia, and I called Diane. And I called the people who walked before me. And I am very, very grateful. Very, very grateful. <sighs> Let me start off a little bit with my numbers. A little bit where I'm coming from, from a physical perspective. I'm currently 5 foot 10 and I weigh 160 pounds. My highest weight has been 210 pounds. My lowest weight was 143 pounds when I was about 5% body fat and I thought I was too fat. My weight has fluctuated before I came into this program between 30 and 50 pounds a year for 10 years before I came in here. This for me was a disease of control. Ever since I can remember, I was trying to control my weight. I have sponsored people now who have come in over 400 pounds and I try to get a sense of how much they ate. I 
think. I don't know, because who really knows how, what the volume that we consume. But I really believe that I ate as much as people that I know who are obese. But I could carry it. I can be 50 pounds heavier than I am now, and I just look a little fat. And I can lie to myself to think that I'm okay. But people had no idea, except the close people that I lived with and me, what my life was like with food. Weight is only one symptom of this disease, how much we weigh or how little we weigh. I come from a family of three kids. I'm the youngest of three. My sister is 14 years older than me, so I essentially, she ran away from home when she was 15, so I didn't know my sister growing up. My brother was four years older than I was, and he went away to boarding school. My mother was obese and suffered from this illness. She was a, a, a hundred pounds overweight for most of my memory. She was not a fat kid, but she was overweight for most of my memory. She died early because of, this pro because of this disease. She was in program for a while. She tried it for a while and just couldn't let go. My father was diagnosed with manic depression and was hospitalized on more than one occasion <coughs> from nervous breakdowns. I have a very vivid memory of coming into my home one evening after school and my father had, was in one of his manic phases and had taken all the pictures off the wall and put them in the middle of the floor and was pouring gasoline on them and was ready to set the house on fire and I was able to get him to the hospital. There was a lot of darkness in my family but there was also a lot of love and one of the things that I know is that love doesn't cure this disease and a lack of love doesn't cause this disease. Um, I believe that I was born with the predisposition toward addiction. I believe that I was, I don't know, I, I, I was born with a sensitive nervous system. I know that. And I know that the strength in being sensitive growing up was also my downfall. I really have come to believe that our greatest blessing is our also our curse. And our greatest curse can also be our greatest blessing. And one of the things that I discovered growing up was that I was very, very alone. And I can be in a room of 350 people and feel alone. And I have to tell you that being at this conference, this convention, this weekend, it is the first time that I have felt a part of a group this large. I have never in my life been open enough to be a part of a group. And it is, I am so filled with gratitude. I remember very clearly in elementary school feeling alone when I went to school, feeling less than, feeling more, feeling more uncoordinated than all my friends. I felt very insecure as a kid. And as our last speaker identified very much with what you talked about buying love. My, my parents gave me a very high allowance when I was in elementary school. And I used to take that allowance, and the first thing that I would do is that I would look around the classroom and find out who I wanted a friend with, and I would go and I would go take them down to the store and buy them food. I didn't have any for me, but I bought them food. I'll give you a few, a, a few pictures of 
images. My pictures are going around, by the way. I will give you a few images of what it was like for me growing up with food. Both my parents worked. They worked until sometimes six or seven at night. My brother was away. My brother was away at boarding school. My earliest memories of really using food was when I would come home on the school bus alone. I would get in about 4:30 in the afternoon. My parents didn't get home until somewhere between six and seven, and I had about a two and a half hour time there. And I had no other way of coping with my. I, I believe that I was depressed as a teenager. That sense of aloneness and isolation. I had no alternative to come into except to come into the house and turn to the refrigerator. And I have very vivid memories of coming in in the afternoons, feeling all alone, just opening the door, and there's no one there. And yet feeling kind of relieved because I, because I left school, and wanted to get away from friends. And it was such a dilemma because I wanted to be with friends, but I was too insecure to make friends. And then I would come home. And I would be really, really alone because there wasn't anybody around. So what I would do is the only friend that I had when I was an adolescent was food. And I turned to the refrigerator, and I would sit in front of the television, and I don't remember what was on, but I developed that pattern very early on in my life as an adolescent, where I would just eat and eat and eat. And I remember one night particularly, there was a gallon of stuff that comes out of the freezer. And I ate the whole gallon, and I was so ashamed of myself. I took the gallon out. We lived on a farm or an, on a small acreage, and I took it out. I took the bucket out into the incinerator, and I burnt it, thinking that my parents wouldn't know that I ate it if I burnt the container. And I know that my mother was in pain over this disease, and I remember her telling me, "David, stop eating." Stop eating because you're going to look like me when you, if you don't. And I, I really am grateful for my mother's attempt. I know that she tried. She really tried to help me stop eating. And I didn't know then why I couldn't stop eating. I found another drug when I was an adolescent, and that drug was exercise. And the one thing that saved me was that I found, I read a book. On long-distance running, and I got into track, and I discovered the um, escape that can happen through exercise, and I started to run. And you know, the one thing about running is two things—actually, two things. Um, it's socially acceptable because you can be successful at it, you can look good in the world, and secondly, it's very isolating. You can go for miles and miles and miles. I was running upwards to 100 miles a week by the time I get into college, and you know what? It was all alone. It was all alone, and I could just go and escape the world. I could escape my problems, and I had no idea that I had a problem. You know why? Because it's socially acceptable. And on the outside, I looked really fit, really healthy, and on the inside, I was dying. I reached the level where I was competing at a national level in running, reached national standards. Nobody knew the despair that I felt on the inside. Nobody knew the binges that I had in between the runs. Nobody knew how I was using food in between. It was so isolating and so alone. What happened is that I developed a pattern where I would run for six months and run so obsessively that I would get upwards to about a hundred miles a week, and then I would injure myself. And the problem is, when I didn't have the drug. 
I could keep out of food reasonably well as long as I had this rigid, controlling exercise agenda. But when I stopped running and I got injured, I had no other alternative but to turn to the food. So I would gain 20 to 30 pounds in two or three months while I was recovering from the injury, getting depressed. And then I would lie in bed at night and I would feel this. 20 to pounds for me at that stage felt like 300. I felt so fat. And then what I would do is I would say, well, the only solution is to get back to running. And so then I would go back to run. And then I would, I would start, and I would have to go back. And a lot of my friends that I ran with, because I ran with very high caliber athletes, and they would see this 20 or 30 pounds. And I remember sometimes they would grab me by the side here and, bug, and you know, tease me for coming back and being so fat. And they would grab the side of me, and I would just felt so much shame. But I thought, well, I'll, there's only one solution, and that's just run harder. Get this weight off. And then I'd run harder and run harder and run harder. And then I would get injured. And this cycle is progressive. This disease is progressive. And so the running, I had to control it harder, and the depressions went deeper. For about 20, I mean, during my 20s and early 30s, I came into program, just so you know, at the age of 40. Um, during my 20s and early 30s, um, my life really became unmanageable. A couple of things happened. Um, I was in a very strong religious um, fundamental church growing up, and I left that church in my early 20s and left the relationship that I was in. For, um, the church gave me some structure, so it kept my moods relatively sane and relatively stable. There was also a lot of conversation about God, and I know that God was working in my life all along the way, even though I wasn't necessarily conscious of it as I am today. But one of the things that I discovered was that when I left that church, and I ran from the church, and I ran from my marriage, and I ran from a two-year-old daughter, and I ran from those responsibilities because I was always the good kid. I was, did what I was told, and I never was rebellious until I was about 23 years old. And I, I ran away from all that, and I ran away from God. And for the next 10 years, my life became unmanageable, and that's when the disease really took over. But it wasn't, phys it wasn't visible. It was all the depression on the inside. I used relationships. I went into relationships and used women like I used food, like I used exercise. And I went into a relationship, and when that relationship didn't meet my needs, I would stay on average about a year in a relationship. And I got what I needed, and then I moved to the next relationship. And I heard a lot of people along the path, a lot of people. And I'm just grateful today that I didn't die from other diseases in that process because my morality went out the window. Every sense of principles went out the window. And during that same time, it was progressively getting worse with my food, and with my exercise and this, this cycle back and forth. And it was completely unrealistic for me to train for the Olympics. But I had in my mind that, that pipe dream that if I could just make it to the Olympics, then it'll be okay. Then I'll get better. Then I'll be something. I, I wanted so badly to be worth something that I would go at any cost. And that's where I began to learn when I came into these walls that the nature of addiction of how we use substances, we use, I used relationships. Um, what happened was that at the end of another relationship, by the way, the other thing that I was doing at this time is that I was practicing as a psychotherapist. <laughs> and um, 
I was really good at hiding. You know, I was burning myself out, uh, working so hard helping people. I remember one, one week, I had my own practice. And I, I remember one week I saw 42 families. Some of those were hour and a half sessions. I didn't have a God in those practices. It was all me. I have to do it for all these people. And I was just burned out. And then I would go home and run for two or three hours at night after sessions. And I think I did some of my best therapy when I was burned out. I, I mean, and I did some of my best therapy when I was depressed. Because, boy, could I relate to depressed people. We would just commiserate together, you know. <laughs> people had no idea how sick I was. And I had this image. It was a relatively small community that I worked in. And I had this image that I had it all together. And then I ran these workshops. And then I practiced. And I had, you know, people sent clients to me and... You know, there was not, I, I lied to myself so much. Denial is just so much a part of this. And I had to, to survive at that time. Um, but when I lo- uh, went through another relationship and um, got married for about three years, and she left me, and it was because of the choices that I had made in that relationship. I don't blame her for a minute for leaving that relationship. And that was when I hit my first rock bottom, when I went out onto the highway. And I was about, um, I don't want to be too dramatic about this, but I was very serious about jumping in front of it. I could tell you the exact black Kenworth truck coming this way that I wanted to step in front of. I knew I had a problem, and I didn't know what to do with it. And um, the trouble is is that I didn't trust any other therapists in town. Because <laughs> it wasn't like me to trust I didn't trust anybody except there was a psychiatrist that I used to refer clients to when they needed to be on medication. And I went and saw that psychiatrist. And that was a big step for me to go and say, you know what, I wanted to kill myself. And I'm getting, I'm out of all, I'm in and out of all these relationships. I didn't have a clue to talk to him about food. I didn't have any idea that food had anything relation to this. I was just fat or I was obsessed with my body image. And um, what he told me, after he interviewed me for about 10 minutes, he said that I have, I don't remember actually, to be fair to him, I don't remember how long that interview was. I was pretty unconscious at that time. But he did interview me, got some family history, and he said, David, you have your father's uh, illness. You are manic depressive and you will be on lithium for the rest of your life. And um, I was determined I was not going to be on medication. He, I can still remember the prescription. He had about three prescriptions that I was going to go and fill out and uh, what I did was, I remember clearly, I tore those prescriptions up and I went for a run. And I was going to beat this. I was going to beat this. Um, what happened was, about six months later, I got involved in another relationship with a woman who I am married to today. And we've been together now for, well, that was 87. So we've been together since 87, got married in 91. This woman was a stabilizer in my life. She was my higher power for many years. And she held my moods together. And I believe for the book, when I first met her in 87 until about 93, well, like not about, I know exactly about 93, um, my, my disease, I believe that my disease went into somewhat of a remission because I had this relationship that I was in that I could hold on to. And she stabilized me. I also went into some therapy went into some therapy, saw a therapist that would live three hours north of us uh, and went in for twice a month, drove up 
to the therapist's office because there wasn't anybody in town I trusted. So I drove up town up there, and having that therapy every other week, she saw me for an hour and a half, and, it, and combined with that in the marriage, it stabilized until we had a baby. And all of a sudden, my wife couldn't take care of me anymore. And the energy and her love shifted as it had to from the baby, from me to the baby. And I can tell you, when she got pregnant, I gained 50 pounds during her pregnancy because her energy was going in as it needed to. I understand that now. I didn't understand it then. What I realize now is that she pulled away from me. I had no other alternative except to turn to food. And um, I tried to run more, but you know, this is progressive. My exercise even, I didn't, I, even that was more weighed and measured. When you're in love, you don't need to exercise so much. It's an amazing kind of a thing, you know. But I was mostly in lust more than love. But um, So that's when I started to go back to exercise more, and the mood swings began to take over. And that's, it was about 93 that the, the food really began to take over. Um, I have a vi- one vivid, vi- very vivid memory of the food, and I could tell you lots, but let me just give you one. Um, I'll give you a few, but I'll start with one. Um, I remember having a bad day at work. It was a ver- and the other thing is that I got out of psychotherapy. I pr- got out of practicing as a psychotherapist in 1989, too, and I think that helped a little bit in my recovery. Um, I have great respect for psychotherapists. Please hear me that I don't... That, but for me... I needed to get out of that profession. At that time, that place, it was not the right profession to me. And I knew that even before I, long before I came into recovery, I believed that God was working in my life. But um, I, got, I unplugged from that. But one of the things that I um, remember, I went into consulting and started to work with taking what I learned about families and adapting it into organizations. And I, but I remember having a great deal of, of uh, self-worth tied up in my work. So I had my self-worth tied up in my marriage, I had my self-worth tied up in my running, and I had my self-worth tied up in my job. That works really well when your work is well. But when you have a bad day at work, when I had a bad day at work, I remember clearly, my wife was about, uh, I think my daughter was about uh, three months, four months old then. She was colicky. My wife was home with her. I had a bad day. And I don't remember even what the bad day was about, but I remember that same pattern. I had no alternative about how to deal with a bad day except to go to food. And what I, I, we, ha- we live about an hour from where my office was to where my home is. And I know every convenience store between there and my home. And I remember stopping at seven convenience stores that night. And I stopped at one and I got a bag of stuff and I took it in my car and I drove it down to the river and I stuffed and I just stuffed those feelings because I knew I had a colicky baby to go home to and I didn't want to face life. And I knew I had work that I, that I had, it was a very hard day, whatever hard day was at work and I had nowhere to go. I had no tools, I had no God in my life, I had nothing except food. And then I would stuff it down and oh, it felt that sense of relief when it first goes down. And then that sense of despair when the bag is empty. And there's nowhere else to go except the next convenience store. And I got in and out of there fast. I felt so much shame. I I identify so much when people go in and put stuff in bags. And I remember I put the stuff and just... It was like I was... I was buying some illegal substance. It felt like I was buying what... You know, I've, I've worked with cocaine addicts and it felt like that sense of hiding. I understand addiction now. 
but it felt like I wanted to get that stuff in bags because as long as it was in a bag, nobody could see it. And then I would take the bag and I would put it under my coat and I'd walk out into the car, sit in a car, and speed across the street where there was a park. And I looked around, make sure nobody's seeing me, and I'd open that bag and it would be like I would plan that. And then it would be over. And now what the hell do you do? And you have to go to the next one. And I do the same thing. And I remember on this particular night, I was, um, I told my wife that I'd be home for six, six o'clock for supper. And I walked in at 9.30. I was so stuffed. And I was so loathing of myself. I hated myself. And I walked in. And uh, Val was the kind of person, she never complained. She just said, you know, you're, she's a really good enabler. And she just said, your supper is in the fridge. You can heat it up. I could hear the baby crying. I took my supper. Frankly, I didn't want my supper at that point. What I wanted was sugar and flour. Because the only way that I could fix this was to deal with... So I, would, I went through and got all the stuff that I wanted. Nothing to do with good food. I mean, think of eating anything nutritious at that point. I didn't care about myself. I hated myself. I went to the fridge. I got all the stuff that I wanted. I went down to the television room without even hardly saying a word to my wife. I went down to the television, turned on the television just like I did when I was 13 years old, sat in front of a television with the stuff around me. Val came down. She needed a little bit of support, a little bit of support, like she needed some support. I didn't want to be around anybody. I pushed her away. And I could hear the baby crying upstairs. And I didn't care. All I cared about was give me my food, give me my television show, and leave me alone. I hated myself. I, would, I ate until about 1 o'clock in the morning until I heard the baby stop crying. I got up to go out to the convenience store because we were out of food. And, the ba- and Val came downstairs and the baby woke up. She brought the baby down and said, would you please, I am absolutely exhausted. She didn't ask for very much. She said, I am absolutely exhausted. Would you please take this baby? I was on my way to the convenience store and I said, I cannot right now. I'm, I've had a bad day in a, in a worse tone than that. Yelling at my wife, went to the convenience store and for the next hour I wandered around the neighborhood with a brown bag of stuff. I came in, quiet house, I went upstairs to our bedroom, and I got pissed off at my wife because she wouldn't have sex with me. Now, if that's not alcoholic, I mean, what is the difference between what I did and what an alcoholic does when they got a bucket of whiskey, jar, jug of whiskey under the brown bag, in the brown bag? Um, that's where I've come from with food. Did I have, was every night like that? No, and that's the problem. That's how cunning, baffling, and powerful this disease is. Because at that stage, I probably only had about one of those days every three or four months. But what happens is those kind of days get closer and closer together. I lived with a rageaholic. As I said, that my mom was a, was a food addict, we lived with rage in my family. The trouble with rage is, just like the trouble with those kind of cycles, is 
you never know when they're going to come. So you live in it 24 hours a day. It's like I lived with my mom's rage. I don't know how often she got enraged, maybe every three, four months. But I lived in it all the time because I never knew when the next one was coming. And my wife lived with that kind of fear. It was an abusive relationship. I never hit her, but it was an abusive relationship. I know that today. And thank God for the tools of this program that I've been able to make amends and that we're still married today. I have two lovely daughters. Um, the other thing that I want to just share with you before I talk about recovery and what happened in recovery is that I did cross the line into bulimia. As this gets progressively worse, um, I, I hired a trainer at this time. <laughs> I thought maybe if I got a trainer, tell me how to do an exercise program, maybe that would give me a solution. And uh, started to train for a marathon. Maybe that would give me the solution. I was always looking outside of myself. Still hadn't gone on any medication. Um, still fought that. I could remember the uh, diagnosis. Never been back for any more diagnosis. But it's just, you know, it's just that pattern started again. That unmanageable, addictive pattern began to take off again. And we were out in a summer cottage. And I remember we bought. Uh, we could. We didn't have enough food. We didn't have a food store close, so we had to go into town, which was about five miles into town. We were staying in a summer cab. By the way, when I slow down in the summers, that's always a, that's always was a time that was tough for me. Every time I slowed down, as long as I could stay hyper and not face myself, I was okay. But as soon as I slowed down, I had no tools at how to slow down and be with myself. So we summer holidays were always tough. And what happened was we went into town, bought a week's worth of groceries, took them out, and I was determined I was going to be on a diet. I, by the way, I read all the diet books. I never went to diet workshops because I was beyond all that. I didn't need all that, but I just read the books and read them at home and did the diets at home. And um, I was on this particular diet, and I knew that I needed to stay away. I knew the stuff intuitively. I knew the stuff I needed to stay away from. Bought all this stuff, determined I was going to stay away from it, and got into it. And once I have that first bite, and here's the, here was what it was for me. Well, I'll start again tomorrow. As soon as I said that, it was all, all bars off. As soon as I said that, I knew I was gone. And I started to eat about 7 o'clock at night, and I ate until about 1 o'clock in the morning, and I ate all of our week's worth of food, except anything that was nutritious. Um, and at 1 o'clock in the morning, I hurt so badly, I could not go to bed. I could not lie down. And the only thing I could think of was to eat more. And then I realized, I wonder if there's a food store around and I started to panic because there was no other alternative. And I went outside and started to wander around the neighborhood. I was so stuffed I could hardly walk, and I was looking for a food store for a solution. I mean, if that isn't crazy, eh? And uh, there wasn't a food store around. And I, had, I was so desperate. And that's when I stuck my fingers down my throat, and I learned about bulimia. And there was, it, was this, it was this mixed feeling because all of a sudden I realized, my God, it's freeing. I can get rid of this stuff. All of a sudden, I found a new way to control it. But at the same time, I knew enough to realize I was in trouble. And that episode of bulimia started to become more frequent. And within, um, within the next 18 months, it had been moved toward bulimia about once a month. And I know I've worked with, uh, I've had some sponsees that have, that have been bulimic, you know, 5, 10, 15 times a day. And I know that that's where I was headed. I know that's where I was headed because this is a disease that progresses, progressively gets worse. My sister also is a psychotherapist. She lives in San Francisco. And she recommended that I try, try a 12-step program. I remember going for a run with her once. Um, and I remember whenever she would come up to Canada, I would 
really work hard at losing weight so that I could be thin when she got here. So I'd go for a run with her and look good to my sister. And it never worked. The harder I tried to lose weight, the fatter I felt. And, and uh, so I went and I, and I was on a run once and I had an emotional binge and I just said, oh, I was, this is terrible. I'm, I'm, something's out of control. I can't stop eating and I can't control my weight. And had no idea. And she said, well, why don't you try a 12-step program? And she said, I don't know anything about, you know I, know, I just know that, you know, you've referred people to AA before. Why don't you try a 12-step? I know there's 12-step programs for food. I don't know anything about them. Why don't you give it a try? took me another six months. I came at that time to my first OA meeting. It was OA in our area. We had, um, we didn't have 90-day meetings in those days. But I came to my first OA meeting, and I sat in the back of the room and judged um, actually, it wasn't in the back of the room in those days. We, you know, it was circles, and I sat behind the circle and judged. And I judged all the women because 95% of them in the circle were women, and I judged all the reason why I don't belong here. And I would binge. I remember having a time frame that I kind of defined my own abstinence, and those said, you know, I don't blame that program at all. I was not in a surrendered place. That's why I didn't get better in, the, in that room. But I did lose 60 pounds got down to about 150 pounds, which is 10 pounds lighter than I am now, and boy, did I feel hot. And I was training for a marathon, and I was going to get back into running again. And um, I just, during that whole year that I was losing weight, I just, still did, I just didn't get the freedom from food. And what I, what I found out was uh, a woman came from Boston. Two women came from Boston and uh, told me about this program. And the one word that I heard was the word neutrality. And a lot of people have come up to me since I mentioned that word about neutrality and said that's, you know, that's a really important word. And what they described as being neutral around food is that they had three, you know, they had weighed and measured meals. And when their meals were done, they were done. I never in my life had neutrality around food. I was either white knuckling it, I was trying to lose weight, I was trying to control it. I never had neutrality around food. Today I've learned to have neutrality around food. Um, one of these two women I called uh, by the way I took them out for dinner and I had according to my definition of abstinence I had 17 days of abstinence because I was I was counting the days in those in those days and uh, and and it was and then I pretended when I took them out for dinner that I was had this long-term abstinence so I would I, I know how to walk I know how to talk the talk I know how to talk recovery and one of the things that's really important for me is to realize it's not what I say here, it's the actions I take when I'm done here. That's recovery. What, we, what I say is just a, such a small part of it. I remember once um, getting bulimic on my 23rd day with my sponsor because we had, had the kind of program that you only had a sponsor for 30 days. And as long as you can get through the first 30 days, then you didn't have to call them. And... Uh, that worked really well, you can imagine. And I remember getting bulimic on my 23rd day and going upstairs, and I, never, I remember saying, well, I have to get my 30 days because there was a big ceremony at the end of 30 days when you got your 30 days. And I remember at the end of that 30 days, I said, I want my 30 days so badly that I didn't tell my sponsor that I had, gotten, that I had been bulimic because I thought, well, it's gone anyway, so let's not count it. That's how dishonest I was around food. You can imagine I can lose weight that way, but I didn't get freedom that way like I have today. Um, I had my last binge in a health food store <laughs> on uh, new, day before New Year's. 
1996. Um, last day of December, 1996. And uh, got into a health food store, binged, went home that night. Um, won't give you all the details, but sitting in front of, you know, they talk in AA about sitting in front of the porcelain bowl. I was sitting in front of the porcelain bowl, having a temper tantrum, with my hands um, pounding the floor, having an emotional binge, wondering how I'm going to get through this, and remembering two weeks before that a woman from Boston had been to talk about neutrality around food. And I, I had some kind of vague image. This really isn't neutrality around food. <laughs> and I think she has something that I want. And that's the night that I called her, and um, I let go. What I've discovered when I came in I was 95% surrendered. I really wanted this program so that it could stabilize my weight so that I could start to run marathons. I told, I, I was surrendered to everything except exercise. And when I came in, I lied about the exercise. The only thing, well, you got to get honest. I mean, you said it earlier. You got to get honest to get better in this program. And I was honest about everything except my exercise. So I was exercising about 15 hours a week at that time. And I said, you know, I had this sponsor in this other program who said I might have a problem with exercise, but you know, I don't exercise that much. It's not that important to me because I know what to say. I'm an addict. I know how to manipulate people. The trouble is I got a sponsor who knows more about addiction than I do. It's been walked down this path before. And you can't pull the wool over her eyes. And so she said, well, let's try, how much do you exercise? Well, I exercise every day, but I don't exercise that much, you know. And she said, well, why don't you try exercising three or four times a week? Great. So I still exercised 15 hours a week, but now I only did it three or four hours a week. Now, can you imagine being on this food plan with no grains, exercising 15 hours a week, running 15 hours a week? Um, I, that's when I got down to 143 pounds. And she said, Dave, send me a picture. Because it's going to catch up to you. So I sent her a picture. And I felt fat. And I, but I felt like, wow, this is what I want from program. And she got the picture. She said, David, you are too thin. That's the moment that my recovery began. Because I knew I needed to give up running. Running had been next to friends, running had been my stabilizing force in my life for 25 years. And I knew I had to give it up. I knew I had to give up the dependency on it because it was what held me together. And that's when my recovery began. You know what I've discovered? If there's 95% surrender, it's the 5% that we don't want to surrender, that's where the recovery is. That's what I've discovered. That's what it was for me. And it took me a weekend. I cried for two days when I had to let go. She said, let's try not exercising for six months. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? This has been, I mean, this was everything in my life. And I knew I had to do it. She, she, no, she didn't even insist on it. I just knew I needed to do it. And it took me a weekend. Um, and I made a commitment one day at a time. I'm not going to exercise. And so when I wanted to go out for a run, I learned to pray. And I learned to find a God in my life to replace that running, to replace that food. My weight has not fluctuated more than five pounds since I got 
my weight back up to where it needs to be. It hasn't fluctuated more than five pounds in the last four and a half years. I'm not on any medication, and for the last five years since I've been working this program, by the grace of God, I have not had any symptoms of any of what the psychiatrist said was manic depression, and I don't take any medication. But what I do is that I work the tools of the 12 steps as I've been given. I make three calls a day. I weigh and measure my food. I have a clear definition of abstinence. I have a fellowship. I take quiet time. But I have to work these tools. I need two things in my life. I need the structure that this 12 step, these 12 steps give me. And I need a God in my life. And I have structure without God. I'm back into the old pattern. But if I have God without a structure, I can't do that either. And that's what this program gives me. It gives me those two things. I have to tell you, I had a spiritual relapse last year. And I, I feel strongly that I need to pass this on. Um, I stopped talking to people. You know the one thing about... Um, the one thing about... Uh, Sponsoring is you have to show up every morning at the same time. And that's when I started. I, I can tell you for the first two months I was in recovery, I think I cried every morning. I just, you know, like, I cried about everything. And because um, my emotions, you know, I've learned to live my life, not in how I feel, but what's right to do, what's God's will. Um, where I stopped reaching out, I made calls every day. But they were always to newcomers because we have a new fellowship. And I'm just trying to get it going. And so I'd make calls and I'd say, How are you doing? And I take care of people. You know that old you know, that old pattern that I learned years ago when I was a therapist when I was five years old trying to fix my parents' relationship. Trying to take care of everybody else. And what I wasn't doing was I wasn't talking about me. And now I have a I have a, a daily discipline every day where I pick up the phone and I talk about what's going on. I talk about the insecurity that I feel when I take my kids and drop them off at the bus or my insecurity that I feel when I'm overstressed or the fear or how yesterday when I led a session and I felt so fearful after the session that I'm going to talk to somebody about today. I need to report out every day and I need to have that as an important part of my discipline. Just picking up the phone. It doesn't have to be a crisis. Just talk about the little stuff. I've had to make that a discipline in my life today because what happened was I didn't talk and it built up, and it built up, and built up. And I had what I would call, at least would have called in the olden days, a, uh, a uh, nervous breakdown. It was an anxiety attack in my daughter's school, and I just, got so, I just got to shaking. It was a little simple thing over some photocopying, and I started to shake. This was just last December, and I realized I haven't been working the tools. I haven't been putting my life, my program first, my recovery first. So the, the message that I have is that there's, there's hope here. And it comes with surrender. And it comes with that God-given willingness to do whatever it takes to go to any length to get this. And I've begun to realize the freedom today from food and from my mood swings. And that is, to me, the greatest blessing that I have, the greatest gift that I've ever been given. I had an experience of doing a radio interview where I talked for an hour 
in an interview up in Canada, we got a lot of newcomers out. And I understand, I learned the principle of anonymity because I used my middle name and I was completely anonymous. And we had people new coming in to our program because of that radio interview. And there's people here today because of that radio interview. And you know what I got? I got for the first time an awareness that it's not me. Because nobody knew who was talking. There's a power bigger than you and I that's working this. I could not be here today, but by the grace of God. Um, I just want to express my gratitude for being a part of this group, for the level of acceptance. There are people in this room, you know who I am, you know who you are, that I have talked to, who saved my butt in those early days, who saved my life. Somebody asked me last night, one of the people that flew down here from Canada, what does this fellowship mean to you? How do you put into words? How do you tell someone what it's like when they get you out of food, when they get you out of your addiction and they give you some sanity in your life? What I'd really love to do is to tell well, actually in my pictures is a picture of my family. That's what I have today. They have a, they have a father who's really learning how to show up and how to be a father and how to be a partner in life. Thank you very much. Would all those wish, please join me in a moment. <laughs> all those who wish, please join me in the Serenity Prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you for listening to this audio recording. To hear additional recordings or to learn more about Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous, you can visit our website, foodaddicts.org.